real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Today we are going to be talking about gangsters and the journalism that goes into reporting on their worldwide connections. For that, I have Kim Bolin here. Kim is a journalist with the Vancouver Sun who just returned from the other side of the world. We're going to get into talking about her five-part series that was just released on the Vancouver Sun website called Lethal Exports. Uh, Kim, you were last on here in this podcast, uh, July of 2022, so it's been a while. Wow, it's been a long time. (laughs) Thanks for welcoming me back. Yeah, no, I'm glad to have you back. Uh, obviously, I keep up on some of the writings and I'm pretty well known in the, the gangster reporting world. So uh, yeah, it's glad to get the authorities in here on this. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of launch into just talking about your your trip and how some of that kind of came to. So um, can you kind of let us uh, in on how do you even organize a trip like this? Well, it was actually challenging and really stressful in retrospect at the time I just kind of did it. So I was interested in looking at some of these bigger international links to our Canadian organized criminals, particularly the gangsters, some of whom I'd covered in BC for a long time. And I remember being out, you know, over a year ago with um, Abbotsford's gang police, right? And so this is a municipal police force right in the small community where so many of these gangs were founded. And we were just talking about it when we were, I was doing a ride along with them. And it was like, you know, how do these little kids who started getting in trouble in junior high school, maybe kicked out of school by grade nine or 10, how are some of them now international kingpins mm. in drugs and organized crime, right? Like it just seemed kind of mind blowing. And, the, you know, this kind of thing police talk about, reporters talk about, right? How did that guy get there? You know, it seems a bit baffling, right? So, you know, there was always this little seed planted. I then, in December of 2022, went to Thailand, a bit holiday, but a bit to research the murder of Jimmy Sandu. Uh, we grew up in BC, was a leader of the United Nations gang, got can, got charged with a murder of a red scorpion. The charge got stayed. He ended up getting deported because he'd never gotten his Canadian citizenship and yet continued to sort of cause trouble internationally. And I knew Jimmy. I'd covered his cases. I talked to him a few times. And uh, he got gunned down in Phuket, Thailand in February of 2022. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a few months later, I went over there to kind of follow in the footsteps of the assassins who uh, are alleged to be these two Canadian ex-military guys, uh, one of whom died, one of whom is about to go on trial there in Thailand. Uh, He's been extradited. So, again, you know, that was one story, but it kind of gave me the taste of, you know, these international links to these mm-hmm. Canadian organized criminals and how they're kind of cruising around out there. So I put together a proposal in June. I applied for a fellowship because, you know, the way the media is these days, there's not a lot of money kicking around for local travel, let alone international travel, right? So I was lucky enough uh, to get this um, Lieutenant Governor's Fellowship uh, for Journalism, and that kind of covered not all, but most of my travel. Okay. And I was able to map out, you know, this trip that I was going to take. Uh, so, you know, again, it's some of it's speculative. I mean, you find a few news stories from different countries. I talked to contacts 
I really wanted to go to China, honestly, to find out how, you know, this BC guy, Robert Schellenberg, ended up on death row. It's been a high profile case, but I was sort of told by contacts and policing, no, you can't really go to China right now. It will not work <laughs> right? Especially with my mouth, no doubt, right? So, so I, I chose to go to Australia and New Zealand, Fiji, and Southeast Asia, Indonesia, back to Thailand and to Vietnam. Because all these countries had significance to Canadian organized crime. Uh, some of them are, are holed up there, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. trying to avoid charges in Canada. And some of them are the destination countries for huge amounts of drugs that are being organized in part by transnational organized crime based in Canada or Canadians based overseas. Uh, so it was it was really, really interesting. But yeah, I... Uh, you know, fortunately, right around the time I was doing the fellowship, you know, the CBSA made these record shipments of methamphetamine. And we're talking tons, right? Six yeah. tons overall, hidden, you know, very professionally in, you know, bottles of uh, that were purporting to be canola oil. There was some disguised, uh, which everyone finds quite funny, as maple syrup. <laughs> and they were all going out of the port of Vancouver for either Australia or New Zealand. So that was a pretty interesting angle for me to pursue. And, you know, I understand in Canada, police don't say too much about ongoing investigations. But, you know, we didn't find out where do you think this is coming from? Who do you think is behind it, even in a general way? You know, this is a record amount of drugs. It's coming from Canada, of all places, you know, and going to Australia, right? So, I, I felt like that gave me a hook and something really solid to investigate. And, and I kind of went from there. Fortunately, there was someone at that news conference back in June from the Australian Federal Police. You know, so I got his, uh, his uh, business card and I mm-hmm. uh, followed up with him when I knew I was going to be heading down there. And he, you know, helped me make some contacts. Uh, but I did literally cold email you know, uh, media people in all these different agencies, you know, Australian Border Force, uh, New Zealand Police, Australian Federal Police, you know, different institutes. And I was kind of shocked at how well I did in terms of getting people uh, agreeing to talk to me and tell me what's going on. So, you know, yeah, there were times where I was a bit stressed out, like something would get canceled and you know, in Canada, I've been at this for decades. People know who I am. It helps generally, maybe not always in terms of getting interviews lined up, but down there, you know, they don't know who I am, you know, this reporter from Canada, right? So, you know, and in some of the other countries, it was even more challenging. Like, you know, I went to Fiji because I was told that they have this really bad methamphetamine problem. And some of it is this Canadian meth that's sort of falling off the boats en route because they're just you know, these poor South Pacific countries that are known for their, you know, gorgeous beaches and, yeah. you know, wonderful, simple people, you know, are now being inundated with methamphetamine just because they're on these transnational shipping routes that organized crime uses to get their product into Australia and New Zealand. So, um, you know, they get, they hire local people to help them out. Uh, the ships often dump uh, cocaine or uh, more, n- more regularly now methamphetamine. Uh, in places like Fiji, it's 330 islands. There's virtually no police or customs in most of the islands. And then, you know, locals, you know, find people with boats that will take it the rest of the way, fishing boats or sometimes sailboats, right? Yeah. So they get paid in product. And now you've got this poor country that was not a drug-consuming country. 
you know, and huge numbers of people are using methamphetamine and they're injecting it there. Yeah. You know, so it's really, really heavy duty. So HIV rates are up because, you know, they're sharing needles because there aren't a lot of needles. And there's just a real lack of education and understanding of what they're even using. Right. So big social problems there. Yeah, it was a bit harder to find people there, but I did. I hooked up with some local activists and, you know, went around and talked to people who were using, uh, did get the head of the Narcotics Bureau who confirmed this Canadian connection. Uh, So, yeah, it was just real piecework, a lot of hustle on the ground, some things set up in advance. Yeah, and you know what? One of the things you brought up there, just how sometimes talking to the Canadian law enforcement and they won't even in general terms say where something might come from or who they think is connected. It's like, I don't know if we always have to play so dumb. <laughs> we can say, we know this is connected to this group. Like that's, that's not going to out anything necessarily. But do you find, um, when talking between, so there's the Fijian police, Australian police, uh, do you find they were a little more open than Canadian authorities when talking about this? It, it seems so. Without a doubt. Uh, and, you know, now, having said that, like here, they have very strict rules or policies around cases that are before the courts, right? So when I first tried to set things up in New Zealand, for example, uh, you know, I, I made the mistake of asking about the maple syrup case, right? Okay. <laughs> you know, so I said, oh, you know, this is so interesting because of the Canadian connection. And right away, I got emails back saying, we don't talk about cases before the court and kind of, you know, so thanks, but no thanks. I thought, oh no, oh no, I'm blowing it, right? So I'm like, oh, what about something more general? Can I please just talk more generally about this issue where Canadians are involved in some of the bigger shipments that you've had here? Maybe you can give me an example of a case that's gone through the courts. So they do have those rules. Having said that, I felt like they were really welcoming and happy to talk about the broader issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they also were happy to talk about cases that had been completed And also some guys that haven't actually been charged yet. I think my second day story is on a very colorful character who grew up in the Fraser Valley here in Abbotsford uh, named uh, Kamla Wong. And I've been tracking this guy for more than 15 years. And I learned from Australian federal police on the record that he is essentially the right-hand man of the head of Sam Gore. Sam Gore is a huge, you know, criminal network headed by a Canadian named Say Chai Lop. And uh, Say Chai Lop grew up in Toronto, but he's mostly been living overseas. And when he was finally arrested a few years ago, I don't think Canadians really knew who he was. You know, journalists did their best, but couldn't really track him, you know, because he didn't have a big presence in Canada. Kamala Wong's quite different. You know, he had a restaurant outside of Vancouver in Abbotsford, uh, all the gangs used to meet there. He was very closely connected to the United Nations gang, but never quite a member. And I talked to police way back then who told me this guy's operating at a higher level, yeah, much higher level. But then I go on this trip and I get sort of told on the record in interviews that he's the right-hand man of Say Chai Lop. So I can place him in this, you know, arguably the most successful methamphetamine producing a criminal organization in the world. You know, they call him, they call Say Chai Lop the Asian El Chapo mm-hmm. uh, because of the amount of money Sam Gore made at its peak, you know, between $8 billion and $17 billion a year. He's now awaiting trial in Australia, uh, but his, um, you know, BC right-hand man is cruising around 
always seems to get out of any trouble legally that he lands in. Yeah. Well, and I find it interesting, just like, you know, you can say things in generalities, um, but I don't get why police uh, don't partner with some people more often because we can't do everything on our own. Uh, journalists are certainly not a, uh, subject to the same rules that we are uh, when it comes to like intelligence. You know, you can go out and ask any question you want. If I go out and ask somebody something, I'm an authority figure. Right. Sometimes you got to charter caution or caution people, um, you know, in case it's used as evidence. So it's just, I, I, you can see there's like a, a chance for a partnership or at least some information sharing there. Um, did you find, so the Fijian one I, I thought was uh, kind of crazy how they got like 300 islands. They don't have enough police to mm-hmm. uh, check on all these. So all these islands just kind of go untouched. It, does it seem like it's just a big free-for-all over there? It does seem like that. And, you know, while we need to do more here to crack down on the problems at our end, you just see these places like Fiji and, you know, Papua New Guinea and other South Pacific islands. They just don't have the infrastructure or the resources to really tackle this. Now, the Australians and uh, the New Zealand police do what they can in that area. Um, you know, even though it's quite quite a distance, right? You fly from Australia to Auckland, it's like three, three and a half hours. Then you fly to Fiji, it's another four hours. Mm. So it's not like these places are, you know, a hop, skip and a jump, right? But uh, the Australians in particular kind of maintain, you know, presence in the region. And that's welcomed. It's not like those countries, you know, maybe a different attitude in Canada when people find out DA is up here or whatever, yeah. right? You know, they're happy to have the help and the support. And in fact, when I went to meet the head of the Fijian Narcotics Bureau, you know, I there was an Australian federal police person there and someone from, you know, the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, just coincidentally kind of sharing space, right? So they work uh, hand in hand, but that still doesn't give you the physical, you know, uh, numbers on the ground of officers, you know, to really get out and do something about this. And then you don't have the infrastructure within the criminal justice system anyway, right? Mm. Uh, There's also some corruption there. You know, I think the people I met were solid people, but excuse me, you do hear about uh, corruption. The United Nations Office on on Drugs and Crime is very concerned about that in the region. And um, yeah, it was really eye-opening to go there, but I also felt like they were learning information from me, right? So you know, it's like policing, you know, like when you're able to go out and network and talk to people, you learn so much more, but you're also kind of sharing what's going on at, at the Canadian yeah. end too. So it was a really great exchange. And, uh, after I left Fiji, uh, just in the last two weeks, they, you know, cause I said in my story that people believe that, uh, some of the meth is being stockpiled there. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a glut in Australia and New Zealand. They want to keep the prices high. They have the private, uh, the private sea can. Yeah, yeah, everywhere, right? Uh, so anyway, within the last two weeks, they found uh, four tons of meth in a couple of houses under construction in the resort town of Nadi. They've never had those kind of seizures before. So the good news about that is it's really putting it on the agenda nationally there. Uh, even my story done in Canada was being circulated in uh, in Fiji because, you know, the people on the ground are trying to get help with, uh, you know, uh, the addiction issues, the HIV issues. And 
there, there's no help available, right? So now they're in a way happy that there've been these record seizures because it shows the extent of the problem and the government will have to take action. Did, did When you were with the Australian authorities or any of the other ones, I guess, did, did they offer any opinions, uh, maybe kind of off the record, about Canadian authorities or the Canadian government? And like, you know, maybe they're failing to crack down on things coming through the port. Because when I look at it, it's, it's like if we put a stamp of approval on something, like it's gone through Canada and we're saying this is okay to go out or come into our country even, but uh, we're shipping it out somewhere. That has like a level of expectation that comes with it, saying it went through Canada. Um, maybe not everything gets checked, but I, I just feel like, you know, if we're doing that, it kind of hurts our brand, our reputation. We have a little more responsibility given the resources and things that we do and being such a transshipment point for the rest of the world. So do they offer any kind of opinions uh, and say like, hey, you know, it's actually been pretty bad, uh, uh, I don't know, dealing with Canadian authorities or the government? You know, no, they will not say stuff like that on the record. I mean, they're, you know, they're very savvy. They understand what's going on uh, up here. And also they do have really good partnerships with both the RCMP and with the CBSA, particularly the CBSA. I mean, you know, the CBSA figured out uh, that some of these uh, transshipments of methamphetamine, you know, that were hidden as other things were suspect. And so they basically, you know, were the ones uh, that, you know, led to the interception. So then Australia is very grateful for that, right? Um, yeah. Now they do understand that there are legislative differences because that's a big part of it, as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure you've talked about on the podcast before, you know, so for example, if, you know, they pass intelligence on, you know, to law enforcement at this end and, you know, there is a prosecution, uh, you know, that could come out in court, whereas in Australia, that intel would not have to be disclosed in court. So that's the Stinchcomb. The Stinchcomb. They're well aware that there are different disclosure rules. And, yeah. you know, we are a different country, right? But as I did say in the final piece in my in my series, you know, there are a lot of experts who believe that some of these things need to be looked at so we can be more equal partners. I think that, um, you know, they they're happy. They know, you know, they're happy to work with the Canadians, but I think they're well aware that there are a lot of prosecutions at this end of the highest level, you know, and that's something that I tried to also point out. And there are reasons for that. Um, but, you know, that's something I think Canadians need to address. Right. So I did hear from one person, not directly in policing that, uh, for example, when say Chai Law the leader of Sam Gore was arrested in the Netherlands. He was on yeah. route back to Canada, right? And there was some concern or some rumblings that if he, you know, managed to get to Canada, which he was trying to do through the courts there, they'd never get him, yeah. right? So there is a, a belief or understanding that maybe Canadian courts, uh, you know, don't necessarily side with uh, law enforcement on some of these bigger cases, right? I mean, uh, yeah. you know, I, I mentioned Cap Pamela Wong, say Chai Lop's uh, right-hand man, and, you know, he was a fugitive for over 10 years on serious uh, drug smuggling charges in Canada, and um, he was finally arrested in 2021 in Taiwan, and I learned he was arrested because of uh, intelligence from the Australians. They figured out who he was because they were seeing him with, say, Chai Lop when they were investigating him. So even getting details like that, like I would never would have gotten that kind of information if I hadn't physically been there 
done interviews there, right? And he was going around with a fake passport? He Well, no, he had a legitimate uh, passport from uh, Laos, the country that he left as okay. a refugee, was hiding out there. Uh, so it was interesting, you know, even though people, you know, leave these countries because they have issues with, you know, the government. Uh, then when they're hiding out, they're often back in those countries, right? So, so that was interesting. Um, he, I do believe he had other passports as well. So he was brought back to Canada in 2021. You know, um, I know some of the police that have been involved in the original investigation, which dated back to 2009, uh, had serious health issues. One had died and they couldn't actually testify in pretrial hearings about, you know, little things that happened, uh, during the arrest, which, Mm. uh, his lawyer had filed, um, you know, kind of charter challenges of the seizure of the evidence. So Kamala Wong won his pretrial motions and the charges were dropped and now he's back out and about again. Right. So, so that kind of thing is well known amongst law enforcement that that kind of thing happens in Canadian courts with, you know, fairly regularly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the record, it, you know, they, they, they just rave about their, their partnerships with people here. Um, I mean, we don't have that many people stationed in the Pacific region. And, you know, I spoke to, uh, you know, this also a Canadian, Jeremy Douglas, is with the uh, United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. And he said that there should be more Canadians in this region uh, due to the amount of trade. And, you know, with all the legitimate trade comes the illegitimate trade. Yeah. Right. So a lot of people would like to see more liaison officers stationed throughout the Pacific region uh, to help tackle organized crime. Well, I think that's one thing that helps, say, the Americans, is they'll station people everywhere, and they've got a lot of them. And that's how you actually get to know these regions and who the players are. You have to have people on the ground involved in the local ongoings, I guess. Um, and one of the points you brought up was uh, Say Chai Law. Like, so I had heard that when he was arrested over in Netherlands, um, yeah, the same kind of along the same lines. They didn't want him to get back to Canada because it's actually hard to extradite from here. Now, I don't know anything about extradition, but I've heard that on a, a number of fronts, even partner agencies that we've dealt with, that um, you know, extraditing from Canada, especially if it's a Canadian citizen, uh, is much harder than trying to get them out of places like maybe you know anywhere else in the world. So. Sometimes they want to pick people off in these other nations and then they can kind of, you know, go around Canada if they have to, which was a pretty interesting point with say Chai Lop. So that might even be why a lot of people here didn't necessarily hear about it. Right. Um, might, I don't think it was reported on very extensively. So one of the things I was going to ask about uh, was, was what was kind of like the most shocking or striking points from your trip? Uh I mean, there was a lot, (laughs) there's a lot that you have in there that was like pretty eye opening. Um, but for yourself, like what, what are you, you know, you've been doing this for a lot of years. So what kind of struck you the most? Well, a couple of things I would say, I mean, you know, obviously I was very moved by the situation in Fiji, the people I met, the suffering that I saw, you know, to think that my country is playing a role in that you know, it's hard, right? You know, again, Canadians, we have this worldwide reputation of being nice, of being a decent country. And yet, you know, we are creating suffering in other places. So that was more, you know, a little heartbreaking to see and to see people with, 
very few or zero resources trying to tackle that problem. In terms of eye-opening, uh, I would say going to Ho Chi Minh City and seeing how the city operates, for example, like it's an incredible, you know, fast-paced city with all the amenities while also still being, you know, in a communist country with statues of Ho Chi Minh everywhere, right? So, and, um, you know, I went to a few of the places where the United Nations gangsters from Vancouver are believed to have been hanging out, uh, where they lived. And I talked to people about these fellows because they were involved in a very violent assault of a Hollywood director back in 2017. So I interviewed yeah. him about how his recovery went and, you know, if he was frustrated that, you know, they never really faced any justice, which of course he was, and he loved Vietnam. He had made, you know, his Kong movie there. Um, but going around and talking to people who knew these guys or had seen these guys, it was all whispers, all whispers. Yeah. No one wanted to use their name. Um, you know, so that was, you could just see how easy it is for people to uh, go there and build a different life, right? Uh, and basically be completely unaccountable and be able to launder their money. So, you know, I, I guess I suspected it would be that way, but, you know, I, I, I did get a message from someone from Canada while I was there, just telling me to watch my back, mm. you know, because it's different there, right? Like yeah. as a journalist, I, I can, you know, feel relatively safe anywhere I go. And, uh, you know, in Canada and I'm in Australia, which is very similar to here in New Zealand and even Fiji. And then suddenly you're in a place where people are saying something could happen to you and no one would know or care. So mm. watch out. These guys are not happy that you're, um, that you're asking questions essentially. Right. So, you know, that's, I mean, I suspected it might be that way, but, um, you know, it was still really interesting. And I also, of course, I, I love Thailand. I've now been there twice in, in a year and, um, you know, trying to dig more into the case there, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, I was able to confirm, in more detail, the link between Robert Schellenberg on death row in China, BC guy, and Kamla Wong, and how that whole operation unfolded that landed him potentially, you know, uh, executed. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was shocking and interesting, um, you know, to be able to get more detail. And, um, you know, likewise, uh, another, you know, protege of Kamla from BC who's on was serving a life sentence in Thailand. I was sort of able to make the connection between that BC guy and uh, Robert Schellenberg. And it's just interesting to be able to fill in the gaps in these stories because I think we often learn in the media here, and you know, we, we have fewer resources than we used to, but it's also because we don't get a lot of information from police in Canada, as you mentioned, um, to be able to you know dig a little deeper and fill in the holes to fully understand what's been going on was uh was eye-opening really it was i was happy to get as much as i got i i and a little surprised mm. honestly well on one point yeah so it's interesting how you can put pressure on people just you by yourself and you're getting these messages saying hey stop asking questions when i talk to bad guys they don't care about the criminal charges in canada mm -hmm. at all so mm -hmm. one of the only people who's kind of shaking the tree journalists um the other part that was striking for me was that James Raish, you say that, right? Oh, yeah, Raish. yeah, yeah. Re React. James React. React. We call 
react. He's still coordinating stuff from in jail. It's like, take his I damn know, phone away. That was, <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean, that sort of, I wanted to go and see him, but uh, to do that, I would have had to do a court application. I was basically told it wouldn't be successful and it would take a lot of time. So I thought, okay. Mm. And I get this intelligence from the Australians, you know, and that was another thing. Like they, they knew, okay, she covers organized crime in Canada and they're literally giving me names and details of Canadian organized criminals, you know, that they have intelligence on at the highest levels. And that was really, uh, you know, I really appreciated that. But the the REACT thing was fascinating. You know, they had done this incredible investigation in Australia. It's called Operation Ironside uh, with the FBI, uh, where, and it's interesting because, you know, if you go back, the genesis of the investigation was a void in the encrypt- encrypted communications market. Yeah, The void was created because the Vancouver companies that were supplying devices to the underworld uh, got arrested in the United States. Again, not in Canada. The first one was Phantom Secure, which is, of course, very well known because, uh, you know, that is one of the um, criminals that Cameron Ortiz, uh, you know, reached out to to offer mm-hmm. up information. So that was a Vancouver company, but um, Phantom Secure had 14,000 phones in Australia circulating amongst the bikies, as they call the bikers down there. Uh, Both the Comancheros and the Hells Angels murders were being arranged on uh, those phones. Uh, You know, it was crazy, right? So they were happy when he got indicted in the United States, where he's currently serving a sentence, but he's almost finished. You know, so, and then there was another one, you know, Sky ECC, also started by a Vancouver guy and also implicated in this big case this week. Um, so, so what the Australians and the FBI did, and I'm sure you've heard of this case, is, you know, they developed an app called Anom mm-hmm. and they had an insider who they were working with, you know, kind of an agent. And uh, they, took advantage of that void and they circulated these phones, these Anom, um, the, the Anom app and devices to organized criminals everywhere. And for two years, the police listened to all of their messages, mm-hmm. you know, decrypted. It was just like so much intelligence, right? So, you know, uh, hundreds of charges ended up getting laid, but there was also beyond the charges, just all kinds of intelligence, like the information about React. Uh, you know, presumably using one of these devices or this app while he's sitting in jail in Manila. So they were concerned because, uh, you know, the drug shipments he was arranging were going to Australia from Canada. So he's been very involved. What was also interesting is that while he himself was once an independent soldier and later part of the Wolf Pack, you know, gang coalition, uh, very close ties to the Hells Angels, He's been working with the United Nations gang, which is largely based in Vietnam right now. So, you know, basically completely betraying his own gang and, you know, his best buddies back here in Canada, because, um, you know, it's pretty shocking because you've got three United Nations gangsters currently in jail for being part of a murder plot, uh, you know, where Riak was one of the targets, that famous Kelowna shooting in 2011. That left uh, Red Scorpion John Bacon dead. Mm-hmm. Larry Amaro of the Angels seriously wounded. You know, a young woman who was with them paralyzed. Another young woman injured. And Riek managed to escape that vehicle. 
And here he is now. Partners. In jail in the Philippines, working with the gang that killed one of his best buddies. I I guess it all comes down to survival. I don't know. There's no honor. There's no honor. (laughs) No, there is not. You know, and and that you asked me about what was um, surprising to me. Uh, the other thing they learned from that major investigation and and ongoing intelligence that they have that they shared with me just is how you know these guys who at uh, the street level the mid level you know pretend to be at war with other gangs at the top level they're all working together all of them so you know I know some people in law enforcement they kind of uh, downplay the Hell's Angels they think oh they're not all that significant but according to the Australians they're operating at the highest levels in terms of the movement of methamphetamine and other drugs internationally. Hmm. But they're working with the Comancheros, which is the big biker gang in Australia. Again, on the street level, HA, Comancheros are enemies. There's been conflict. The highest level, they're all working together. Yeah, They're working with Sinaloa. They're working with Sam Gore. They're working with Middle Eastern organized crime. So, you know, they're, they're all just entrepreneurs when it comes right down to it, who are willing to do anything uh, to make the maximum profits, which they're doing. But meanwhile, you have all these much younger guys, which you see, which I see, who are, you know, they've got their tattoo for their gang and they're willing to go and kill someone for nothing, for nothing, right? If they knew how used they are, mm-hmm. you know, if they knew that at the top, these guys are pocketing billions of dollars. And while they're, you know, getting arrested or getting killed. Yeah, they're dispensable. They're totally dispensable, right? And, you know, so I I tried to write that because I thought that was an important message for younger gangsters who think there's some level of loyalty to understand. The, uh, one, you brought up a good point where you're talking about where people are arrested. And that was one of the things I kind of picked out of the articles was very few people get arrested in Canada. So we already talked about Chai Lop. Um, the cell phone guy, he's in the U S yeah, both, both the, the cell phone companies, you know, the U S went after them. Yeah. So phantom pure. And I, I wrote about him before we knew about the Cameron Ortiz stuff. When he first got, I dug into him. I went to his accountant. I dug up all his real estate records here and, you know, police knew about him here. They totally knew about him, but you know, they know they can't build a case here that will be successful in getting charges laid or getting, convictions right so that's the biggest problem though and that's why a lot of places are avoiding dealing with i guess canadian authorities to an extent is they don't see the results here and i think we have to have a serious conversation in law enforcement about why is that right that's kind of why i ask like what do the australians and stuff say about us i mean everyone's going to say nice things on the surface but maybe they're like you know what we don't see uh on the back end you know the follow-through with charges we're not catching people there we have to wait till they go to this country or some other place or you know mm-hmm. we'll partner with a, a a third nation and we'll get them in some other place so i think there needs to be kind of a lot of reform there needs to be legal reform there also needs to be some change in the way law enforcement goes after these people maybe some more aggressive uh maybe more aggression on the part of the crowns when going after them um so when one of the things too I wanted to kind of get into was just talking about kind of the tiers of these criminal organizations, mm. and you brought it up a little bit. So talking about the bikers, um, one thing that I you know I've noticed here with the job that we do is you might so 
You have the Hells Angels. They got a whole bunch of chapters. The chapters can kind of run their own shows independently, but they all kind of feed into the bigger, greater mother chapter. Um, But out of those, say you have 20 people in a group, maybe one, maybe two are like a person of significance that has pulled some real weight, can call shots on whatever it is. Uh, But at the end of the day, someone supplies them and we generally see them used as muscle. So there's someone above them. So that's talking like triads, cartels. But you're saying in Australia, the bikers are kind of one of the bigger ones there. Or do you think they're yeah. still kind of the tier two, I guess? I don't know what we would call them to rank them. but Yeah, I would say that they, like you say, someone above them. But I mean, if they're working equally, you know, as a business, using a business model, to purchase product from Sinaloa and arranging to transship that through Canada to Australia mm. and different um, organized crime groups own part of that shipment. I mean, you know, not one group. Yeah, they pool in. Ton or yeah. six tons. It's all pooled, right? Are those, you know, is there someone above them or are they equal partners? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that would be the debate. But definitely in Australia, they have a lot more biker gangs than we have here. Uh, a much wider variety, and they do control the domestic drug trade market, just as the Hells Angels control the domestic drug trade market in yeah. many parts of Canada, right? But there are some that are operating at the highest levels. And, you know, Australia has been uh, very aggressive uh, domestically at cracking down on organized criminals, uh, you know, so that even when they're not being arrested, life has become challenging for them. So a lot of them moved overseas, right? Yeah. And I know there was some concern that there was some Comancheros in Canada. You know, and of course, would we even know who they are, right? So I'm sure we would get intelligence telling us who they are. But, you know, they then have started going after them internationally, like building cases at home, right, uh, that can be prosecuted and then extraditing them. So they've had like top level Hells Angels who've been living like in Turkey and Dubai yeah. Uh, extradite, right? They go after like major criminals at the, whereas I think Canada's approach and, you know, I'm not in the secret Intel meetings if there are any discussing this. So, but my, what I believe is that, you know, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind in Canada. So when the drugs are leaving Canada, oh, great, they're leaving or we intercepted them. That's good enough. When the people are leaving Canada, great, they're gone. We don't have to deal with them anymore. Yeah. But in reality, there's still, you know, there's still big players who, who in some cases are wreaking havoc at home. Like in the case of the United Nations gang, you know, which started in the Fraser Valley in 1997, like small rural area east of Vancouver. And they're now like a big international gang centered in Ho Chi Minh City, you know, with a branch in Dubai, if you will, Mm -hmm. you know. If they were a hundred percent just operating internationally, I could see, you know, maybe the benefit of law enforcement saying, "Well, let's not waste resources. They're not causing any trouble here." But they are because they're in leadership positions. They're communicating on a regular, daily basis with all their little underlings here, and we see this gang violence, right? And we see drugs, you know, throughout our communities, right? So. I think that shows the globalization of it, right? I mean, globalization of it for sure. Internet and phones. They they don't have yeah. to be here. They can run stuff or have generals below them to run things. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. So, 
you know, it is it is really interesting. I don't see Canada going after kingpins, uh, even when there's a nexus to Canada. Uh, other countries are. Um, you know, is that something that Canada wants to invest in? You know, I don't know. But you're right. We should have at least a conversation about what's going on because, you know, we've seen these reports, the Peter German report, the Cal Krusty report, talking about how, you know, uh, Canada's become a bit of a soft spot for transnational organized crime. Yeah, I think with um, specifically with the bikers, uh, a lot of that is seeing is believing. So it's it's easy. You can say like, hey, there they are. They're doing bad things. But when you get to some of these groups like UN or you go up and it's like triads, cartels, like these are white collar crime. They're in suits. You would never pick them out of a crowd. Um, we, we see that like in doing what we do and go and try and ID people in certain places. Um, we'll, we'll find certain people that were like, wow, I never would have thought you're involved in this, but we just happen to be talking to you for whatever reason. Um, so that kind of brings me on to one of the, uh, last topics here we're going to try to get to was about the ports and there's a lot of talk about port police um i know chief dubor uh in delta was uh he was i don't know if he wrote the article or he's part of the article uh talking about port police and just how they need some law enforcement in there what's kind of your take on what's going on in the ports is law enforcement the answer or is there something else that needs to happen in that realm? Well, interestingly, I wrote a five-part series way back in 2015. It seems so long ago. Um, and it was about uh, the number of Hells Angels and other people with organized crime links with actual drug importation and exportation convictions mm-hmm. that were working as longshore workers on the port. And it was dozens, right? Now, I appreciate there are thousands of people working there, but still, this was very significant uh, that these guys uh, were able to work in an area that is supposed to be so secure. Um, you know, I also, you know, got some reports that sort of showed this pattern of infiltration at the ports going back 20 years. So it was it was um, an issue that had been identified by the government. I was able to document it and literally name names who was there. The way the ports work, and I don't think uh, everyone knows or understands this, there is an association of all the companies, the BBC Maritime Employers Association. They don't hire the workers. The union provides the workers. It's a very different model than most of us. You know, if my company needed some more workers, I wouldn't get to go and hire them, you know, but that's the way the union works there. They provide the workers to the port. So they're in a very strong position, obviously, right? Because union membership is everything. And how they get new members is once a year, there's a lottery, right? And each member of the union gets an application, right? And they get to give it to whoever they want. Mm. And there's been lots of stories over the years about the applications being sold for up to $50,000 because people want to get on at the port because it pays really well. So uh, Hells Angels tend to give their applications to other Hells Angels. And then there is a a lottery where, you know, they literally are supposed to pick the the successful applications out of a hat. The the way the lotteries had been run when I did this investigation is, you know, they were private in someone's home who was on the executive of the union. And gee, Hells Angels kept getting picked out of the hat, right? You know, there's a lot of suspicion about what was going on. So they were able to basically increase their foothold 
in terms of the number of people with that very specific association working on the dogs. So right away, that raises a lot of red flags. But you're thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm sure they have to go through security clearance. No, not necessarily. The vast majority of workers at the port are um, in general areas, it's called, and they don't need security clearance. So there's just certain areas where you have to have security clearance. So the Hells Angels and others with criminal records uh, for trafficking, uh, they take the non-secure jobs. However, the security zone is essentially a painted line on the ground. So it's very easy to cross the line, whether you have the security clearance or not. So, you know, that, yeah, in addition to, um, you know, port police, which we haven't had uh, since 1997, um, you know, I do think it would make a difference. I remember when I worked on that series, I got a tour of Delta Port, uh, which is uh, where, you know, they believe there are a lot of trusted insiders, as they're called, that are aiding in drug importation and exportation through the port. I was with... Um, you know, some RCMP that were part of that uh, joint waterfront task force, which kind of doesn't really exist to any large degree now. And as soon as they saw me on the docks, like we're talking, you know, giant cranes everywhere, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of workers, pools were downed. Oh, really? You know, huh. they saw, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. It was, it was like, you know, not for very long or anything, but, you know, it was obvious that, you know, they wanted to, see why this person was there right and i think that's the fear the fear is you know the ports are huge in terms of the canadian economy and uh because these unions have so much power or this union has so much power there's a fear that they will stop you know uh the port operations and that will cost the canadian economy but when we're talking about security mm. you know canadian security because like i say we're talking drugs right but obviously you know, something more nefarious linked to terrorism could be going on or human smuggling, right? Yeah. I've, you know, there's lots of stories, you know, it's like The Wire, you know, the TV show, right? Yeah. It's, you know, are people being smuggled? And there's all kinds of uh, stories you hear that are very difficult to confirm that that's also going on. So I think increased security clearance and, um, you know, Delta, you mentioned Chief DuBoer, uh, Delta commissioned Peter German, the former RCMP deputy commissioner, to do this report. Uh, he quoted a lot of my stories from 2015, which unfortunately didn't have the big impact I wanted them to. But um, he, uh, you know, has recommended that they grandfather in existing workers because it would be really a nightmare to try and do security clearance on tens of thousands of workers. Uh, but that all new employees, all new hires have to go through security clearance. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a no brainer, right? So that would be another important step. Um you know, so yeah, port police, I don't get why we're the only port on the West coast of North America with no port police. You know, yeah, I, I think that's, it's crazy, but I also wonder too, just what effect, uh, the police service would have just because he's, as we were talking, like police haven't made a lot of arrests in Canada when it comes to these massive shipments coming through and the people involved. So just throwing bodies at it might not be the answer. I think a lot could go into technology, looking into, right. you know, just being able to process these uh, canisters faster. You know, I'm sure someone out there, private sector, could come up with some ideas and make some money off of it. Right. Um, there's also got to be some legal reform. Um, but the other part too was with the, the, the legal reform, 
and you had a part on this with the chemists in your story. Right. Um, for us, I think a lot of the time we think just, oh, let's just put another law in place. And that doesn't really work, especially when you're talking about the chemicals, the precursors, because they have chemists, these really smart people who work with these uh, criminal groups. They just come up with a new chemical. So it's a lot of playing mm -hmm. whack-a-mole when we're trying to legislate our way out of things necessarily. So I, I just see it as like, they, this has to be a really holistic uh, solution. Totally Everybody's agree. really got to have a part yeah. in this. Um, one of the things you'd mentioned though, was you talked to the federal government uh, about the port police and they didn't know that they, that they didn't exist. They thought, or well, either they thought they were there or they didn't, but they didn't know about it. This was, this was to, to put it in context, it was a quote from the Delta mayor, George Harvey. He's got this, you know, very thorough Peter German report. He's trying to get some action in Ottawa. He traveled back to Ottawa in the fall and he met with, you know, significant cabinet ministers. Mm -hmm. Here's this report. And some of the people he met with, he says, told him they didn't know there were no port police. So it's, it's uh, I'm sure the federal government officially knows that, right? But it was just some individual politicians. Mm. And, you know, I totally understand that. No one talks about it, right? Yeah. And if you, you know, go to a port city, you know, the ports are all closed off. Like here, the biggest, um, you know, container port is at, in Delta, Delta port. You know, we see it when we go to the BC Ferry because it's kind of a parallel peninsula with the ferry at the end of it. You look over it and you see the port and it's quite beautiful, but it's 100% closed off from the general public, right? So people, it's, it's just sort of another world, right? And uh, you know, same with the downtown container port. You know, it's all, we we see the cranes from a distance. They're very scenic, but we don't know what's going on inside, right? Yeah. And that is the problem, is that, uh, you know, police, like Delta Police has the responsibility for Delta Port. They have to ask permission before they can go on to the port. You know, because it's all kind of privatized, right? It's all the private companies that are controlling uh, the gates, the security, what's going on there, right? So it's. <clears throat> There are also a lot of jurisdictions mm -hmm. and they all overlap. They all say, well, that's not our responsibility. That's someone else's responsibility. So there honestly has to be just a real frank round table where these issues are laid out. And like you say, they come up with a holistic approach to at the very least harden our ports. Yeah. So that not being, you know, so that the cartels, you know, working with the Hells Angels have to figure out some other way to get their drugs, which no doubt they will because they are so sophisticated. Well, I appreciate the clarity on it because yeah, I was reading that one part and I'm like, well, yeah. I don't expect every MP to know about every single issue under the sun, like depending who they were asking, maybe they should know. But um, yeah, I just <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting to say the least. Uh, and one of the other parts was, um, I think in German's report, and he's a consultant now, but he's former RCMP. Right. Uh, the way I understood it, his report said there was no follow-up by RCMP on many of, the, many of these seizures. But when you ask the RCMP, they say they're following up on every single one, which is an answer I would expect. <laughs> but um, is there any sense of how many they actually follow up on? Well, I've been trying to get data from them on any major seizure over the last few years that's led to charges, mm -hmm. right? And I, I haven't seen it. Now, there are smaller seizures where, you know, they do, you know, like there are ways, you know, the, obviously, as you know, they 
they will, you know, uh, maybe replace the, you know, drugs, particularly for importations, you know, with some other product that looks like whatever the the drug was, and they'll, you know, do a controlled delivery, right? And then they can actually uh, get someone, you know, charged. So that does happen. But I'm talking about these tonnage loads, right? And, um, you know, so far, there hasn't been anyone charged. Uh, but we also know, and we haven't talked about it today, you know, police agencies across Canada and in fact, North America are having trouble getting bodies and keeping bodies and federal policing, you know, I haven't been able to get the specific vacancy rate, but, you know, I've been led to believe it's as high as 30% in terms of officers. So uh, they don't have enough people, you know, that's not, that's not specific to them, but, you know, we do know that in BC primarily, there's a lot of contract policing where, you know, the RCMP officers are being assigned to municipal duties. Uh, and then you see these vacancies in these, you know, higher level um, units or sections that are supposed to be tackling organized crime. You know, is that part of the problem? I'm hearing it is. Will they say anything officially? No. Yeah. You know, so we have to, you look at the Australian federal police model. They don't do any, they're not the municipal police force anywhere in Australia, except Canberra, which is the nation's capital, right? Their state police are, you know, look after municipal policing in all the big cities. So, you know, people are talking about that. Should the RCMP have a very different and specific mandate to only do, you know, federal policing as opposed to, you know, all the different functions that the RCMP serves in this country, right? And uh, when you're short of bodies, I can see that you would probably assign people to those municipal policing jobs because you need people on the ground, right? Yeah, you kind of read my mind because I'm, I'm thinking of the article and I got to go find this thing again, but it's, uh, and I just had the NPF on and then I had Gary Clement on and he kind of gave the opposite uh, opinion of what the NPF was saying. So they're saying we can do it, it all and we can be in municipal policing. Um, Clement was of differing opinion. Um, but I think uh, when we talk about the resources, it was something like 11 or 16% of the RCMP budget is actually spent on federal policing. The rest is on municipal policing, which it's like, but, but you're the only ones who can do the federal stuff. Right. Which right. You might want it to be a bigger proportion on not being able to get enough bodies. So this is something that I, I'm very interested in because every police service across Canada and the U.S. and probably a lot of other places is having issues getting people into this profession. But if instead of just bodies, um, because bodies get injured, they get you know hurt, they got to take days off, there's family. But if we had better technology, I think we could do a lot more with better technology and not that we have to reduce the number of officers, but we don't necessarily have to worry about, I need 50 this class and 50 the next class, and I got to get this number in a year. Um, but can we do more with technology? Also on that side, uh, I, I really think the private sector, uh, we need to partner with people outside of just law enforcement. You can vet people, you can give them security clearances, but I think there, there's room for that partnership rather than having to worry about them specifically being law enforcement. Also, we look at the special uh, specialized areas. So when we're talking about like these high-level frauds and money laundering, can I necessarily take a cop off the front line um, and put them into that role? 
maybe if they if they have like a background in accounting or finance and you know they come from like Harvard or MIT or something where they're super smart but i just don't know like if if police are necessarily the answer just the bodies all the time so those are kind of three things that i've been exploring more and more on this podcast with some of the guests and you bring up some really good points about that so yeah i definitely um I mean, you wrote about it and, and it's just interesting seeing the discrepancies like former RCMP now consultant is saying one thing, but the RCMP proper is saying different. So yeah, I thought that was uh, really good. Lots of, there are so many issues that we need to talk about more and that we need to address, some of which are above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it's too bad that police can't speak more openly about what's going on you know, because of restrictions within their organizations. I mean, I understand it, uh, but, uh, you know, we need that expertise. And, you know, I know a lot of these consultants, I talk to them, I interview them, but, you know, even their information about what's happening within policing becomes quite dated because, you know, they left uh, the RCMP or municipal policing yeah. you know, several years back and things are different now, right? So, um, yeah, it's too bad that we can't have uh, franker discussions because I do think they're badly needed. Yeah. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Um, where can uh, people follow you? Where can they find you and, and all your work? Well, I am one of the diehards still on X, you know, because I do <laughs> find it's an easy way to reach a lot of people. So x.com forward slash K And I link to all my stories there. I'm on the Vancouver Sun website, which is www.vancouversun.com. My five-part series about transnational organized crime connections to Canada is available. There's no paywall. It's on the Vancouver Sun website. So I hope people will take a look and offer their perspective. We're also doing an online forum uh, with uh, some people in law enforcement on February 6th. And the link to that is also on the Vancouver Sun website because we're going to talk about these very same issues. Awesome. I'll put all those links up in the episode description. I remind people to follow, like, comment, share all this stuff, um, help the podcast out, help Kim out with her series. Um, yeah. So appreciate having you on again. Uh, hang on the line for two seconds. <laughs>